All right, welcome back, everybody, to episode 12 of the third season of the Building Lifelong Athletes podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Renneke. Thanks so much for stopping by. I really appreciate it. Today, we're going to talk all about botulinum toxin for musculoskeletal indications. So we're talking about when we're using this, why we want to use it. It's definitely more fringe injection, not as common. We're going to talk about the specific uses I think it's appropriate. So let's get started. First of all, what is botulinum toxin? When someone hears a toxin, usually that's not a good thing, right? Usually that's some sort of, we're going on a toxin cleanse, right? Cleanse toxins from our body with this shake, whatever. We're not talking about anything about that. We're talking about something specifically called botulinum toxin, which is actually a toxin produced from the bacterium Clostridium botulinum. So shout out to Sketchy Medical, if any of the residents have ever seen that before, or maybe who's done residency or medical school during that time. It's kind of an animated series to explain different bugs and the things they can cause and issues down the stream. And one of them is this clostridium species, clostridium botulinum, it is produces this toxin, this botulinum toxin. So most commonly people know this as Botox, right? So people might be like botulinum, that sounds terrible. Isn't like a bad disease? You don't wanna get that? So yes, it can be an issue if you have an issue from the toxin from the botulinum species, you can get botulism. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the toxin specifically isolated from there, used for medical purposes, all right? So this is not say, hey, go out and get botulism and it's gonna solve your problems. No, it's a very, you know, use case, very specific use case scenario for this. But most people are familiar with Botox, right? It's very ubiquitous, especially from the cosmetic space. Most people think of Botox, they think of, you know, the injections in their head, you have to get rid of the wrinkles. So yes, it is the same idea, but use it for a different case. And so I just want to clarify though, that is a name brand Botox. So I'm not going to talk specifically about Botox. I'm talking about botulinum toxin, which is the generic name, meaning there are several different commercially available formulations of that. There are different types, toxins like A, B, C, there's multiple different toxins, the most common ones being toxin A and B. So, you know, botulinum toxin A is the most predominant one. We'll talk most about that. And so the question is, how does this act, right? Like what, what is the point of taking a toxin and putting it into our muscles or anywhere else? And so the toxin acts on motor and sensory neurons. And so when we neurons, that's the area of the nerves essentially conducting. So the nerves, either the sensory nerves, meaning sensory neurons are the nerves that are sensing pain or anything like that. Whereas the motor neurons are the ones that give us contractility of our muscles. And so in the motor neurons, Essentially, what happens with this toxin is it reduces the muscle activity by irreversibly binding to the motor end plate presynaptic receptors, which essentially inhibits the release of acetylcholine and thus produces weakness. So if we step back here and kind of think about this, what happens at the end of what we call a motor end plate? So essentially, a nerve is here and then the end plate is here. We're kind of talking about something has to be released in that synapse, that space. So that's usually acetylcholine. They release acetylcholine that goes you know, to the motor end plate and then it causes a contraction. What's happening here is we are inhibiting the release of that acetylcholine, therefore decreases the contractility, right? So we're not having that contraction. So we are producing weakness in the muscle. That's the whole understanding of Botox is that we're not allowing contractility to happen. This then decreases the ability of the muscles to contract, like I said, leading to this weakness. And the idea is that this is actually thought to last around three months. And so most people say, oh, I gotta come back and get Botox every three months or whatnot, you know, for my face. And that's the general idea why people say that is because it's usually lasts about three months because what happens is when these the toxin takes hold, what, what happens is this muscle inactivation, you know, inhibiting that, you have to regrow these muscle fibrils and these junctions essentially, right? So you have to form these junctions between the nerve and muscle and it takes about three months to regrow that. So essentially, like I said, it's not like it's permanently closing any sort of muscle function forever. What happens is that specific receptor and that area that is affected by the toxin, that essentially is calm down and kind of can't do anything. And so your body will regrow additional ones as well. And that takes about three months. And that's why it takes about three months and things tend to last about three months. And so 
From a muscle perspective, long story short, as a lot of rambling, I'm sorry, inhibits the release of acetylcholine, therefore producing weakness and inability to contract the muscle. That's what we're going for. From a sensory neuron perspective, this inhibits the release of pain modulators like substance P, glutamate, caspasin-induced duration anesthesia, or calcitonin gene-related peptides from peripheral and central neurons. So long story short, what that is, well, it inhibits the release of pain modulators. So the idea is that somehow, from a sensory perspective, we are decreasing these release of pain modulators, so we should hopefully be feeling less pain. That is the idea why it may be working from a sensory perspective. And this might actually last longer than our muscle ones. It's thought that it may last up to about six months, which is kind of interesting. So long story short, bringing it all back here, a bacterial toxin that we have harvested and isolated and purified, it prevents muscles from fully contracting and it all also may reduce the amount of pain that you perceive. So that's the idea as to why we would use botulinum toxin in a musculoskeletal perspective. Obviously very different use cases for why we'd use it cosmetically, but that's the idea for why we do those in those settings. So let's talk about real quick about off-label and what that means for indications. Any sort of injection of botulinum toxin into a muscle is off-label. And off-label means there's no formal approved use for it. So when companies make a medication, they say, hey, we're going to use it for this condition. For let's say, you know, hey, making this headache medication, it is used for headaches. And that's what we're doing. Maybe you do that and say, hey, well, actually, I found out that this medication, if we take it, it actually prevents seizures from happening or prevents something else from happening. And that's typically an off, quote unquote, off-label use, meaning we're using for something other than what it was initially put up for. And from the musculoskeletal perspective, there's nothing that botulinum toxin was made for that we're specifically using it for in a sports medicine indication. There are some that you can use in terms of spasticity for, for looking for like cerebral palsy, things like that. There are some use cases for that that are on label, but we are not using it for those instances. So anything we do is quote unquote off label. That being said, I don't want that to scare you. It sounds like sketchy. Like we're going like the back, you know, back alley, like, Hey, you want to try this off label thing? That's not the case. It's obviously under the proper supervision, but it's super common. Like I said, it is safe. You know, we've seen this medication used tons and tons and tons of times in other places. We see botulinum toxin used all the time. This is just a slightly different indication for it. Once again, does not mean it's not safe. It's just not as rigorously tested. So that is something you need to consider. And like I said, I'm always going to talk about that. And I just want you to be informed, right? If you're informed, then you can make an educated decision. And I just don't want you to think, hey, this is something that like everybody does for every single situation. You know, if someone's advertising this as like, hey, this is a fix for whatever. And it's probably coming off of their anecdote and some of the data, which we'll talk about here, but it's definitely not from an FDA approved indication mechanism. But that being said, doesn't mean it's unsafe, just that we don't have as, you know, strong of indications for it from an, a governing body perspective. That's it. So I want to talk about side effects too, because this is very important. There are different side effects in every injection. We've talked about this ad nauseum. If you're listening this season, if you've listen to all of them so far props to you but you'll know that every injection has side effects and that's why everyone i want you know when we're listening to this, i want you to be educated about this i want you to understand the risks and the benefits and you can make a informed decision that's best for you but this one does have some that that are unique that are a little more quote-unquote scary right so the big thing we talk about if you look up the side effects that could happen there's a big warning in the box right there's a theoretical possibility that this toxin could spread and cause the symptoms consistent with botulism essentially so things like generalized muscle weakness we explained why that would be things like diplopia or double vision ptosis or eyelid droop dysphagia or problem swallowing and possibly respiratory depression or difficulty breathing those are some pretty scary side effects. And like I said, the reason we did that is because if you think about it from a muscle perspective, right? If our muscles are weak, that makes sense why we're having our, our eye muscles might not 
hold as strong as we want to leading the double vision, the ptosis of the eyelid droop, maybe the same thing, eyelids, dysphagia, the swallowing muscles and respiratory depression, you know, we could have the respiratory muscles be affected as well. And so those are things that can theoretically happen if you have exposure to this toxin. Is this very common? No, not at all. But it's one of those things where I'm always going to counsel about this because this is like the worst case scenario. So if you get injection with botulinum toxin and then you start having difficulty breathing, don't be like, oh, this is just a normal thing that happens. No, that's not normal. We want to get that checked out. Absolutely. The highest risk of this seems to be in children, but it can happen in adults as well. Like I said, want you to be very aware of this, but there are a ton of different side effects can happen. And a lot of them are based off of where you're injecting it, right? So if you just think about the mechanism in terms of inhibiting the release of acetylcholine, so we have that muscle weakness, depends on where you inject it, right? And the face is going to be very different from the abdomen versus the legs, anything like that. So there's always going to be that risk of weakness. And on top of this, for our uses, a lot of times we're injecting these into muscles, there's always a chance that we're going to have you know, more weakness than we want. And so that's one thing we always worry about is like, oh shoot, like we put more than we wanted to here, or this had a bigger effect than we wanted to. And so therefore we're having more profound muscle weakness than we thought. And we also have to be careful injecting these around nerves, right? So it can cause potentially temporary paralysis. One use case we'll talk about here is when we're doing it for chronic exertional compartment syndrome. One example we always counsel about is, hey, I'm injecting into an area that's kind of close to a nerve. So the common fibular nerve, if you inject there and the Botox gets in there, and you can have potentially paralysis leading to a foot drop. So like I said, one of those things, if we're by a nerve, it could get there, infiltrate the nerve, and could lead to some issues. And so we always counsel appropriately about this and understand, hey, that's why it's super important we understand where we're injecting this and why we're injecting it and how much we're putting in there. And so overall, let's talk about the general evidence. You know, what is the general strength of the evidence for botulinum toxin? Overall, it is not incredibly robust. I wouldn't say it's super, super strong. There's not a lot going on in terms of tons and tons and tons of, of patient outcomes. Um, but there are some case reports, there are some case series, there are some randomized trials, and depending on which situation and condition you're looking at for, so it kind of varies. Some have more, more data on others. But that being said, a lot of this is on smaller number studies, meaning the participant-wise, we don't have you know hundreds of thousands of participants that could do for pharmacal, you know, pharmacology or pharmaceutical trials or other even steroid injections, something like that. We have thousands of people. That doesn't seem to be the case. But you know, we take what we get and we kind of go from it. So a lot of time what we're talking about here is we do have some data, but a lot of them is anecdote as well. So it's clinician experience with some data kind of mixed in together. And so now let's talk about the conditions we can treat with this. The first one we're going to talk about is chronic exertional compartment syndrome, which is not to be confused with acute compartment syndrome, which is actually an emergency. Chronic exertional compartment syndrome is not a super common one a lot of people talk about. If you've ever had it, obviously you, you know it or you know someone who had it, you'll understand it. But if you haven't had someone affected with it in your life, the odds are you probably have not heard of this. This is typically seen in active populations. And what essentially what happens is the pressure in the muscle compartments builds up and causes paresthesias, muscle weakness, and exercise intolerance. The way I kind of describe it, describe it is that in compartments of the leg specifically, let's say lower leg, they're kind of like PVC pipes, right? And the muscles are inside of those. And then when you start exercising, you get increased blood flow and you get swelling of these muscles, but there's only so much room to expand inside those PVC pipes. And essentially what happens is when that pressure becomes so great, it starts to press, press on either the arteries or the veins or the nerves and starts to lead to kind of the downstream issues of you know numbness, tingling, exercise intolerance, all those things. And how we treat this typically is like, oh, if we're running out of space, we cut open that tube or cut open the compartment with something called the fasciotomy. Now, that being said, for the chronic condition, you start running and exercising and feeling these symptoms. When you stop, they go away. So it's not like we have to emergently do a fasciotomy. Whereas if you had something called acute compartment syndrome, that is a surgical emergency, you need to go to the OR, get that cut open. That's a whole different 
topic that we're not talking about here, but they are very different. I want to let you know that. But that being said, the treatment for both of them is a fasciotomy. That being said, fasciotomies are the quote unquote definitive treatment, but they range in like success anywhere from like 55 to 66%. So it's not a slam dunk. And so somehow people came up with the idea of, Hey, let's try injecting this botulinum toxin to give you something else to trial as well. The idea is that when we inject that botulinum toxin, it decreases the intramuscular pressure, which makes sense, right? If we're decreasing the amount of contractility that the muscle can have, we are therefore going to decrease the amount of pressure that could potentially be in those compartments. Your results are somewhat impressive when you consider the general idea of why we're doing it. Overall, it's a pretty high success rate. Athletes, you know, in some studies, were able to get back to their previous level activity at about a 66% clip, which is pretty impressive if we're just injecting that. Also, some people use this injection as a way of understanding, hey, who would do well from a fasciotomy? So they inject it. If they do well with the botulinum toxin, they say, oh, this person may have symptoms that are caused by this and might do well with the fasciotomy. And that being said, there weren't a ton of adverse effects. So people have seen to have good outcomes. Like we talked about, there's that theoretical risk of if you inject it in the wrong spot, could have that foot drop, but people seem to have a pretty good outcome. When people inject it, how do they use it? You know, the range will be anywhere from like 12.5 to 50 units of the botulinum toxin for each injection, typically about 25 units in the proximal one third of the muscle belly and then another 25 units in the distal one third. And you can put them anywhere in the anterior, lateral, and deep posterior. In the leg, you have four different compartments, the anterior, lateral, superficial posterior, and deep posterior. So for the anterior, lateral, and the deep posterior, you're typically doing the 25 units, 25 units. And then for the superficial, it's a little different, typically going about 50 units into the medial and lateral heads of the gastrocnemius, which is one of the um, muscles in the superficial compartment, and then 50 units in the soleus, which is another muscle in there. Like I said, that's a little, probably more niche case than most people care about. But that being said, there are kind of patterns we use for injecting those. And that's what I've done. And people can have good success in this, which is kind of crazy. You know, you think about you know, these big fasciotomy surgeries, but then you inject a little botulinum toxin and people can have effects lasting up to many, many months or sometimes even years, which we talked about. We expect three months, right? Three months in this and based off of the mechanism, but people have had results up to years, which is kind of crazy for this. So it's one of those things where there's not a whole lot of data. It's a lot of case reports saying, Hey, we did this and this is what we got. And that's kind of how data starts. But it's just something to consider. Hey, if you're have chronic exertional compartment syndrome, this is for me, this is like, Hey, we should try this before we go to surgery. So I think it's a, a less invasive thing and kind of an option that we have. Another option that we have, we talk about plantar fasciopathy, right? So can be super annoying. Most people know about this condition that either they've had it or someone they know has had it. And it's kind of an irritation of the fascia in the bottom of your foot. That's kind of how I think about it. And Botulinum toxin can be used usually for refractory cases. So this is not one where it's like, oh, you've got plantar fasciopathy, let's go straight to Botox. Usually it's what we're going at the end of the day. We're kind of having to say, hey, okay, we tried other things, let's do this. There actually are a few randomized studies here and it does seem to improve long-term outcomes and seem relatively safe. The injection amount seemed to be about 50 units of botulinum toxin at the point of maximal tenderness along the medial calcaneal tubercle. And so once again, not our first line. You know, there's lots of things, obviously therapies first. I always explain if I think about treatments as a big pyramid, right? The base of that pyramid is going to be conservative things like rehabilitation exercises, eccentric training, stuff like that. And then the next level up on the pyramid is injections and then surgery finally. And even here inside that injection ones, I'd probably inject you with prolotherapy first before I go to botulinum toxin, just because um, potential side effects and a cost as well. And just a real quick number, talking about number cases, um, you know, people throw in numbers anywhere from, you know, botulinum toxin can cost anywhere from like $250 to $1,000, depending on, you know, a lot of times people charge per unit of botulinum toxin for a cosmetic perspective. It is not necessarily the case for 
the musculoskeletal world. But like I said, this can be a rather expensive injection, kind of even to the long along the lines of PRP potentially. And so it's definitely not one we jump to first because it is usually very expensive. And like I said, because we're using off label for this, no insurance is going to cover this. And so it's going to be pretty much out of pocket, most likely, unless you're either in a study or you're in a military institution necessarily, anything like that. Another indication we talk about is osteoarthritis. So obviously, right, we know osteoarthritis, very prevalent, can be super annoying and painful for people. And we can use this to treat persistent symptoms. Once again, not the first line therapy for it, but something we can consider. There are a few controlled trials and overall there does seem to be some benefit, but there are limited studies. There was a systematic review in 2018, which saw improvements in the Womack and VAS scores, which are pain questionnaires. So showing that we did have improvement with pain. And then a 2017 meta-analysis showed improvement in pain scores at two months as well. There did seem to be a lack of long-term studies on this though. It seemed that it worked out for about four to six months. But we don't know how long it definitively lasts, right? Was it 12 weeks? Was it 16 weeks, 20? Was it 12 months? Who knows? But the data kind of went out to four or six months and seemed to have some improvement in their pain at that time. So something to consider, but although definitely not first line, right? You know, weight management, activity modification, exercise therapy, other non-joint degrading options are the things I would think about first. But once again, putting another tool into our tool belt here saying, hey, this is something we can try if all else has failed. Another indication we talk about is lateral epicondylopathy or tennis elbow, right? So this is our classic tennis elbow. There have been some pretty darn solid treatments for this in terms of rehab, prolotherapy, PRP, you know, shockwave therapy. There's lots of things you can do for this that have pretty good benefits and are um, probably going to be less expensive than botulinum toxin injections. That being said, this can be used as well. So like I said, for me, this is especially this we have, I feel like we have lots of good options for this botulinum toxin is going to be kind of down on my list and something we can think about for refractory cases, but it is in the data. So I want to talk about it overall, though, there's generally weak evidence. One meta-analysis found it to be similar to steroids at 16 weeks, and then patients showed a significant decrease in their grip strength as well. So that was a clinically, or I should say statistically different grip strength, not necessarily functional. Um, but like I said, we're seeing some decreased amount of grip strength and only similar to steroids at 16 weeks. And man, for me, that's that's not ideal situation at all. There's another RCT that looked at, there was improvement in one year with some minor side effects, but it did report a case of transitory paralysis in the extension of the third digit. So once again, there are potentially side effects for this. Overall, what I'd say is clinically, this seems to be weaker in, in some regards in terms of the, the data that I see. Um, it's something that we could try refractive, but it seems to be because we've seen some not ideal side effects. This is one where I'm like, okay, I'm going to try these other things first before I go to that, but it can be done. And like I said, not every person's getting these side effects. So it's just something we have to consider. Another condition we talk about is myofascial pain syndrome. And this is kind of a catch-all term, kind of like a big bucket saying, we don't know the cause of this. You know, people will talk about quote unquote trigger points or hot spots or whatever you want to call it. But essentially myofascial pain is we have pain in this area right inside the muscle belly and we're not sure what's causing it. There's no formal diagnostic criteria. So it makes it very difficult to study this. So who knows what this actually is, but essentially what this is saying is, Hey, this person has chronic pain in this location. We don't know why let's try putting some botulinum toxin in there. And that's what they did. And overall there's mixed outcomes, no real evidence that improves things. I think there's other injections you can try for myofascial pain syndrome before you get to this. But that being said, it was done. Didn't seem to be unsafe. It just didn't seem to have awesome outcomes. And then another one we're gonna talk about here is piriformis syndrome, right? So piriformis syndrome is one of those muscles in the posterior glute. You can use this toxin for piriformis syndrome. The doses range anywhere from 100 to 300 units potentially seems to be a safe and viable option. There's not a lot of data on this. Once again, this is all kind of case reports and anything like that. Um, not a whole lot going on there. 
Um, a couple other things that were mentioned but didn't have huge amounts of studies on were joint contractures, Morton's neuroma, carpal tunnel even, but there wasn't quite as much there. So kind of, you know, land in the plane here. Overall, I think this kind of goes into my special occasion bucket, meaning, you know, my tools in my toolbox. This is not one I'm pull out unless it's really kind of scratching my head saying, hey, we don't have a lot of the options. The exception for that being chronic exertional compartment syndrome. This is like going to be probably my first line other than gait retraining or other physical therapy stuff. But that makes sense from an injection standpoint, chronic exertional compartment syndrome, this is one that I would do early because I think it can be helpful and can save you from a surgery. But the other things, this is one you kind of have to like earn your way to. A lot of these situations would be like, okay, well, we've tried this, tried this, tried this, hasn't worked. Like, let's give this a shot because I've said I'm not sold on the data for almost any of these conditions, but it's one of those ones where, okay, like I feel like it can be relatively safe as long as we understand the risks and benefits, we can go for it here. And like PRP and stem cells, this won't be covered by insurance. So it's going to be very expensive potentially. And so once again, I'm always trying to go the least invasive and least costly thing first, if possible, and then kind of work from there. And this is usually not going to be any of those to start, you know, in terms of least invasiveness or the least costly. So kind of, once again, think earning our way to these injections. Um, it's still off label. So it's questionable in the long-term effects. There's not a lot of data as you know, in terms of how much benefit are we getting in these long-term. So that's still up in the air, but overall, like I said, does appear to be safe, but the stakes are a bit higher because if something does go wrong and you have muscle weakness or a nerve issue, that can be a big issue. And so I, you know, if I'm thinking about who's the right patient for this, this is someone who has failed other conservative approaches. They understand the risks, hoping to avoid a surgery. That's kind of where I think I'd use this injection. So that's it for today. We're going to wrap it up. Thank you so much for following along. I really appreciate it. If you'd like, comment or subscribe or share with a friend, that would mean the world to me. And if you want to leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform, that would really, really help get the word out. So, but thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Now get off your phone, get outside, and we'll see you next time. Disclaimer, this podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The topics discussed should not solely be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any condition. The information presented here was created with an evidence-based approach, but please keep in mind that science is always changing, and at the time of listening to this, there may be some new data that makes this information incomplete or inaccurate. Always seek the advice of your personal physician or qualified healthcare provider for questions regarding any medical condition.